Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. The labor market showing slack, but when will it be enough for the Fed to start cutting? The market thinks March. Some are even pricing in January. Morgan Stanley says June. Our economist said something entirely different last time she was on. We'll ask her if today's data changed anything. Plus, if you didn't hear this yet, CVS is going to change the way they price prescription drugs. CEO Karen Lynch joins us exclusively with the details ahead. They say it will lower costs. Dr. Scott Gottlieb will also be here to react. And we'll ask him about that new study showing chat GPT, I know this will shock you, may incorrectly be answering medication-related questions. He says it's true. And call it rom-commerce. Am- uh, Walmart, I'm sorry, is launching a shoppable show. One of our guests says advertisers will love it, but will it actually draw viewers? Tweet me your thoughts at Kelly CNBC. Let's start with the markets, though. Dom Chu has the numbers. Clear story in Bondland, Dom, a little bit mixed on the stock side. That's right. So if on the stock side of things, we've seen both sides, positive and negative, so far today. But on balance, for the most part, it's generally a down day today. The Dow Industrial is currently down about 105 points, one-third of 1% declines there. The S&P 500 at 45.62, down about 7 points about two-tenths of 1% decline there. And by the way, at the highs of the session, we were actually up nine points and down 18 points at the lows. So we have been tilting generally towards the lower end of that range so far today. The NASDAQ composite just about flat on the session, though slightly green, the composite index at 14,194, the last trade. Now, Kelly mentioned that yield story. The data, the prevailing narrative, and everything else going on has led to that bid for government bonds here in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world as well, but notably here in the U.S., The 10-year benchmark note yield currently sits at about 4.178%. Now, remember, I'll point it out, at the cycle highs, we were north of 5%, about 5.02%. We've dropped a lot in just a couple of months' time here. And just to give you an idea of how close we are, we're kind of approaching that 200-day moving average or longer-term trend line for the 10-year note yield. And by the way, you got to go all the way back to June for the last time we really kind of traded below those levels. So keeping on that 10-year note yield and interest rates overall. And part of that story, with lower interest rates, a weakening U.S. dollar, optimism over possibly exchange-traded products coming to market soon enough have given crypto just that momentum trade feeling right now. Bitcoin prices now above 43,000, 43,325 the last trade there, up 161% year-to-date. A whole new trading range. You got to go all the way back, Kelly, to April of 2022 to see Bitcoin prices at these levels. So it is now, yes, some fundamental pieces that might be underlying this, but it sure looks like a momentum trade. It's gone almost parabolic in just the last couple of months, Kelly. I'll send things back over to you. 43,400. Wow. It's been a long time. Dom, thank you very much. And bond yields are down sharply today after those job openings fell to their lowest level in two and a half years. Steve Leisman has the rest of the data and what it means for the Fed's next move. And in fairness, Steve, bond yields were falling even before we got these reports. 
Yeah, look what happens. I go away for a couple of days and the whole operation goes like uh, <laughs> south on me. At least yields did. Data coming in today, Kelly, in line with the general idea of an economy that is slowing, which is what the bond market likes, and creating the context for further declines in inflation, which the Fed, of course, will like. ISM services, 51.8, uh, uh, was 51.8, now 52.7, growing a bit faster, but still subdued relative to the numbers we'd had when services were coming back. The price index unchanged at the pre-pandemic level of 58, and employment modest at around the 50 level. Jolts, uh, 9.6 was the prior. Big miss to the downside, 8.7 million. That's job openings. That's what uh, the Fed wants to see. Those job openings decline in the quits rate, unchanged at a lower level, 2.3%. Joe Lavornia looks at the quits rate, says labor costs are poised to slow further in the months ahead, which no doubt is welcome news for the Fed and the bond market. All of this making the market more sure of coming rate cuts from the Fed in the not-too-distant future. January percent is just 12%. But March rocketing up to 64% uh, today, May, they're darn sure there at 91%. And then look at the trajectory of rates. We look at the off months meeting, uh, off months, the ones without meetings. Um, and you can see there's like a quarter built in at almost every meeting with a bit more towards the end of the year. Look at that January 25 contract to look at what uh, in, in 24, 4% or 1.4% of rate cuts in there. The question is if the market is too confident about how soon and by how much the Fed's going to cut. Inflation has been coming down, but not in a straight line. The market may be priced to have little tolerance here for inevitable disappointments in the data, Kelly. All right, Steve, stay with us as we bring in Nationwide's chief economist, Kathy Busjancic. Kathy, welcome back. The last time we spoke, it, just in October, we were talking about the possibility of another hike still being on the table. But do you think that's definitely out the window now? Hi, Kelly. Happy to be with you and Steve. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing how, you know, just a matter of two months or so uh, makes such a big difference. Um, yeah, we, we think that the Fed is is, is now done uh, raising rates. Um, the inflation numbers that Steve alluded to have come in better and have been very encouraging and, and the job numbers as well. Jolts this morning. Um, it's it just adding to the fact that you know, the economy looks like it's slowing and, and perhaps that's off landing. Now, we still hold a, a mild recession forecast for next year, um, but it, in all intensive purposes, the focus is now on how many rate cuts. Um, you know, we, we have for a while thought that they could start to cut rates in May. Uh, and end of the year, actually, at 4%. And the markets have come, as Steve illustrated, really come right in line with that. Although it's happened so quickly, that makes me concerned and a little uneasy. Hmm. And, and also the fact that they're pricing in cuts in March. I think that's a bit premature uh, to see that play out. Yeah, Steve, I might be mistaken. It's, at one point, there was like a 10% chance of a January cut. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's where we are now, the 12%. What wow. the, the story here, as Kathy's allu alluding to, is that that March number was just 10 or 11%. And I'm only half joking because I took a couple days off and those numbers moved a lot. I came in this morning and I looked at them. I like 60% for March. I remember when it was low double digits. Look, the market has an ace in the hole here, uh, Kelly, that I'd be interested in Kathy's uh, uh, comments on, which is that there's a bunch of month over month changes in core PCE that were in the 0.4 and 0.5% range. And they're going to stop dropping out. So even if the inflation rate stays neutral, you're going to get the year-over-year -year rates going to be flattered by the dropping out of these larger numbers. And I think the market may be internalizing that 
uh, as one, one reason why it feels pretty confident that the Fed will have the data in hand for a potential cut in March. Uh, that said, and I'll just answer my own question, um, sooner or later, somebody's going to have to give on this, the Fed or the market. Kathy? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt the base effects um, can come in and, and be positive, uh, especially if those larger numbers are dropping out of the calculation. But really, it's important to look at the three-month, let's say, three-month annualized change, those type of figures, three-month, six-month. We, we tend to like the, the month-over-month and then the three-month change. Um, but e even there, you're seeing some encouraging numbers, and, and that probably continues. Um and, and we do look more at the core and, and we'll break out, look at goods and services uh, and look at the super core uh, number that uh, Chairman Powell likes to, to reference. And I think of the mix of inflation, number, the readings, what sort of concerns me a little bit is, is what's happening in the rental inflation. Now, it probably continues to decelerate, but there's a supply demand imbalance in housing and that could kind of throw a wrench in things, you know, if anything's going to stall out, it could be the rental inflation. Yeah. So you're already kind of looking for what could keep the that, you know, from going to place. I just want to kind of mention to both of you the flip side of what we're dealing here versus a year ago, when a year ago, everyone thought we were going into a recession that would begin soon. And now, Kathy, I know you said you still expect one, but a soft landing, landing still seems to be the consensus. So maybe, Steve, you can take this, but it, it are, are, is everyone going to be right? Because usually they're not. Well, it's funny. I was um, uh, happy to be kind of in the uh, uh, no recession camp for a while. And then when everybody gravitates to me, my sort of preternatural hatred of being in the popular uh, camp right. uh, makes me rethink the idea. But that, that said, um, I do think there's a good chance the Fed is going to need to react here um, uh, eventually because otherwise it's just going to get too tight. And several Fed officials have acknowledged that. And in fact, you can date back, not date that far back, but date back to last week. It was Waller who simply said the obvious, right? You remember when we reported that, Kelly? Mm -hmm. When he came forward and he said, look, if inflation falls, the Fed can lower rates because otherwise we're going to be tighter than we intend to be. So that's just that's just so it's not like a tightening to loosen conditions. It's a tightening to keep things as tight as, or to loosen, it's a cutting in order to keep things as tight as they were. They're going to have to do that, and it's going to be hard for them to explain, I think, given the if the inflation numbers go the way uh, they're projected to go, it's going to be hard for them to explain why they're not doing it. All right. We'll leave it there. Kathy, we'll see what happens in another six weeks or so. <laughs> Based on the last period of time, could be quite a lot. Kathy Bustjancic and our own Steve Leesman, we appreciate your time. Now, the markets are hoping for a Goldilocks outcome for the economy. Although, take a look at shares of American Express off their session lows after the CEO said October billings were not as strong as Q3, but then said November was back in line. What do we make of it all? Let's ask Michael Cugino. He's president and portfolio manager of the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds. We love these data points from these conferences, Michael, because it just gives us as close to a real-time read as possible on the consumer. I, and I, the story seems to be October was weak. Maybe November's a little better. Yeah, good afternoon, Kelly. Um, yeah, I think it underscores the importance of not relying on any one data point, but trying to get as many as you can and then make some broader, you know, 35,000-foot calls uh, based on the broader, you know, number of data points. So, 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure what to read into this. I, I mean, I think Steve in the last segment got it right with respect to the Fed. Um, if things continue to trend the way they are, they will cut rates to sort of maintain a, a ballast with respect to the right cost of capital, given the economic environments. I don't think that's rocket science. Yeah. Um, I don't think they're cutting as quickly as maybe the market perceived based on some of the other data points you put up there. So why do you think, and, and is this the reason why Bitcoin and gold, what's going on with these asset classes? Well, I think if the cost of capital comes down, the speculative trade goes up. Um, the, the risk goes down in terms of financing a more speculative bet. So that makes some sense. There is a, a little bit of an alternative asset class component of Bitcoin. I don't consider Bitcoin a proxy for gold. I don't think there's enough trading history there, but that's a whole separate argument. But but I can see why it's gone up. It was also beaten down. So maybe it's a revaluation situation. Um, so there's a number of factors there. With respect to gold, I think I can make a more concrete case. Um, and I would probably look at several factors. Number one, uh, we've been on a strong dollar trade now going for the last decade. Um, and at some point, that's going to reverse, reverse, reversion to the mean, et cetera. That's bullish for gold. I would say the central banks around the world continue to be buyers, possibly to finance alternative currencies to the dollar, possibly to just shore up their own monetary um, situation. I would say the Fed is, is close to being done, if not already done. And with reports like today, firms up the argument that they probably are done. Um, I would point to the fact that gold held up really well the last couple of years in one of the more volatile rate hike environments we've ever seen. Yeah. And if you go back to 2013 and the taper tantrum and how how gold fell that year, um, 10 years ago, based on just what occurred during that period, you would have expected gold to fall off a cliff this the last year and a half, and it has not. Yeah, although um, I think it, just to mention there's... Well. The, and lastly, yeah. the geopolitical issue out there. So Jim Reed over at Deutsche Bank ran through the very long-term data this morning. And gold ho holds its own. I mean, it doesn't lose value. It returns about, you know, 0.3% per year since 1800. Um, but, you know, he says that you can get 3% a year from owning a 10-year U.S. government bond or equivalent. You can get 7% on equities. So even since the uh, fiat inflationary era, era in 1971, gold's real returns 1.1%. 10-year gives you 25 you know, equities give you six and a half. So I think, you know, you can make a case for holding it. Maybe it holds its value against the dollar, but you can really do better elsewhere, it seems. Yeah, I, I have no visibility to those numbers. Those sound low to me, to be honest, over mm -hmm. the longer term. But, uh, but, you know, fair enough. Gold doesn't pay interest in dividends. Gold is very volatile. There are periods of time, like during the teens or during the 1990s, where it did nothing for a long period of time. Um, and then it sort of caught up in the period from 2000 to 2013. It balanced itself out or was in a trading range for most of the teens. The last few years, it's, it's moved quite a bit. Um, I think when you keep printing money and you keep declining the unit value of currency around the world, gold holds its value. And I would argue that holding that value is higher than the 1%, yeah. um, and sometimes very aggressively so. But I would also say that there are reasons why you use gold as part of a broader strategy, unless you're a trader and you're trading short-term trends. 
You want to own part of it to provide ballast to a portfolio to provide a non-correlative feature, mm-hmm. and it will give you a return and hold value. So there, there is a reason you own it as part of a broader strategy. Yeah, and you mentioned how just kind of speculative assets in general tend to do better when we start talking about lower rates. And if you look at the ARK-K ETF, for instance, where were we at the end of October? We were, you know, 34. We've jumped to 48. I don't think that's the kind of stock, though, that you would be buying here. I see you looking more to the likes of Lockheed, obviously Freeport McMoran, still kind of a gold play. What? Why not then pile in? You know, if you like gold, if you think this is going to be a supportive environment, why not pile into something more speculative here to chase returns instead of something more defensive? Uh, well, fair question. Our point of view would be to balance off all those things. So you mentioned a couple of the stocks that more, most people would view as more value-oriented or commodity-based in the case of Freeport, although I would argue that's more of a copper play than a gold play. And there's reasons why the copper market maybe has a more aggressive growth take to it. But uh, we pair off in our portfolio some of those sorts of names with technology. We own NVIDIA, for example. We own Palantir Technology in the software space. We own a firm. Um, and so we pair off dividend payers, more traditionally considered value stocks with growth stocks and with higher beta type stuff to give a broader range of return and, and to hedge our bets. All so right. I, I would argue the reason for both in the portfolio. And you have a little sprinkle of everything. Michael, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. You too. Michael Cagino with the Permanent Portfolio. Still to come, CVS holding its first investor day in two years, reaffirming full-year guidance and making some big news about how they'll price prescription drugs going forward. The CEO joins us exclusively next with the shares up 4% today, but still down 23% this year. Plus, what happens when a rom-com meets e-commerce? Details on Walmart's latest foray into the advertising world. And as we head to break, here's a broad look at the markets. The Dow and the S&P are lower fractionally. The Nasdaq hanging on to a 0.1% gain. Even the Russell is struggling, while bond yields fall with a 10-year last around 418. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. At the UPS Store, we want to make this summer the summer of shipping, Summer Shipalooza, so you can start crossing items off your must-ship list, like the vintage film camera your college kid needs for class or the vase you told your mom you would send her ages ago. And with our pack-and-ship guarantee, your items arrive safe or we reimburse you. So stop by your local store today for everything you need to be unstoppable. Visit the upsstore.com slash guarantee for full details. Available at participating locations. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back. Shares of CVS are jumping 4% today as the company's first investor day in two years is underway. Although the shares are also still down more than 35% from their peak nearly two years ago. Among the key highlights today, CVS is overhauling prescription drug pricing at its pharmacies, upending the traditional system. For more, let's bring in our own Bertha Coombs, who is at the conference, joined by Karen Lynch, the CEO of CVS Health. Bertha and Karen? Hi, Kelly. Thank you very much. Karen, thanks for joining us. You know, you've done quite a lot in your more than two and a half years. You've set out to uh, acquire primary care, acquire home care. You've done that. And now, next year, you're facing all these challenges with the loss of the pharmacy benefit contract from Centene, a very big one. You've also got lower reimbursement rates on uh, Medicare Advantage, higher employment costs, and yet you've raised your outlook when it comes to revenues next year. How are you making this happen? Yeah, Bertha, so it's nice to be here today. You know, first, if you look back two years, we've accomplished everything we said we'd accomplish. We, we said we wanted to enter into primary care, we wanted to enter the home, we wanted to enter into physician enablement. We've done that. We said we wanted to reduce our operating cost structure. We've done that. We said we wanted to uh, Im improve health outcomes and in, in patient engagement. We grew 20 million um, digital customers with, you know, reaching 55 million unique digital engagements. As we look um, to next year, it's actually a really exciting year for us. You know, we talked today about our growth in Medicare Advantage. We're going to grow over 600,000 Medicare Advantage members. We're introducing new pricing models in our PBM and in our pharmacies to really drive at what consumers value. For us and our company, it all starts and ends with the consumer. And we're really excited about the products and services and the integrated model that we have to offer to our customers. You talked a lot about the flywheel and how one part, like Oak Street Health and Primary Care, helps feed to another. The Signify Home Care helps feed to the, the pharmacy. But let's talk about that new pricing model, the uh, cost vantage and true cost. This is something that your critics have been talking about for years. And over the last year, you've had members of Congress try to get at it. You've got the FTC has been looking at all of the big pharmacy benefit managers. And then you've got competitors like Mark Cuban's Cost Plus, which won out a big client in uh, California Blue Cross. So how is this an answer to all of those, those pressures? Yeah, you said it right. There is in increased um, scrutiny over the cost of pharmacy uh, and drugs. And as a company, you know, as I said, we're committed to lowering the overall total cost of healthcare. And what this does, it essentially aligns the economics of our pricing for drugs to what consumers will pay at the pharmacy counter. So essentially, what people have been saying, we don't understand. It's not transparent. It's not easy to um, understand how, you know, how much drugs cost. We're changing that. We're a leader, and this is our opportunity to chart a new path to change pharmacy drug pricing, and we're doing that. So just, just to make it clear, there, the complaint now is, for example, say I'm going to go get Wagovi. You've acquired it for $600, but I'm going to pay coinsurance based on the list price, which is over $1,000. How will this change that? So if you think about what we're trying to do, so take insurance aside for, for now, what the pharmacy will do is they'll say, okay, it's $600. 
we'll have a markup fee, and then we'll have a, a, another fee for um, services. And that's the cost that we'll negotiate and transfer to the PBMs. And then the PBMs negotiate with the um, insurance companies and the employers. They'll make the decisions around what your co-insurance is, what your co-pays are. But we will have that transparent pricing at the pharmacy counter and through the entire healthcare chain. And we couldn't be more excited about it because we are you know, committed to lowering drug pricing. Uh, Bertha, thanks. Karen, I was just going to kind of, uh, to that point, say, uh, while well, I know you said you're a leader in this regard, isn't this exactly how cost plus drugs works with Mark Cuban? And, which is fine. I mean, is this, you think, how it's going to work going forward and an implicit acknowledgement that the status quo doesn't really work for anybody, including, as I understand it, maybe some uh, of, of like yourselves who might actually be losing money on the Glip one drugs? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, and you're right, Kelly, you said it, the status quo doesn't work anymore. And there's consumer demand for transparency. Obviously, we just talked about the regulatory scrutiny. So it is a cost plus a markup plus a fee, and, that, and that's the transparency of what we're trying to do. And it's time for change. And, you know, if not us, who? And that's really what we're trying to do. Like, we are the leader in the industry. And if we don't make the change, who else is going to? So that's why we're really excited about the new model that we're bringing to the market. So that would start in 2025. In the meantime, one of the other issues that is happening at your stores is just workers being burned out. We're seeing, you know, to see pharmacists walk out and talk about demonstrating when they're not even part of a union and now talking about unionizing, how are you dealing with that, and how disruptive is that? Yeah, you know, um, Bertha, I think, you know, as it was a very um, targeted and concentrated group of individuals, but I would say a couple things. We strive to be the employer of choice. We have invested over a billion dollars in wages in the last two years for our pharmacies. We have been um, improving, and you, probably, you heard some of this today, we're using technology to create efficient workflows for our pharmacists, so to reduce some of that, um, that burnout. We're investing in hiring, and we're investing in more hours, and really trying to make sure that we are the employer of choice. We have lots of conversations with our pharmacists, and I do think that um, you know, there's 30,000 pharmacists that we employ every day, not all 30,000 were, were um, you know, complaining about walking out. And I think we've addressed the situation. All right, Karen Lynch, we're gonna leave it there. We could talk about so much more. Hopefully we'll continue this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Bertha. Kelly? Back. We, we would love to anytime. Thank you both very much. Our Bertha Coombs speaking with CVS CEO Karen Lynch. Let's bring in Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor, also a Pfizer board member. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, hopefully you got to her, uh, hear her remarks. What would your response be? Well, look, I think it's a very productive move on the part of CVS. I think it probably reflects the fact that less of the uh, margin is going to be driven by how they contract with drug companies through their PBM and the rebates that get paid, uh, and more of it may be through the pharmacy uh, channels. So by changing how they pay the pharmacies right now, it's really a move away from uh, focus on trying to make money from the, from the spread on drugs, rationalizing that, making it more transparent, and in charging a price that's tied to what the drugs actually cost. I think that this is going to provide some advantage to the pharmacy insofar as it is going to give consumers a more predictable experience at the pharmacy counter. They're going to know what the drugs cost. 
rather than that being opaque, which it is often today. Right. I mean, this really feels like a very big moment. It's the kind of the end of an era in some ways of this whole model of integrating the pharmacy benefit managers into the pharmacy experience. I think originally that was supposed to both lower costs and increase margins. It's probably flowed mostly to the parent companies, and yet the parent companies haven't actually done that well if you look at it as a result. So the consumer's upset. It's not like these companies have been great performers. You have new entrants like Mark Cuban who want to disrupt things. And does that feel like where this is all going? How different might the experience of buying a typical pharmacy drug be in a couple more years' time? Yeah, look, I think the writing was on the wall with respect to the complex formulas that are used to uh, try to determine what drugs cost at the pharmacy counter and also what they cost to the consumer and the health plans. Congress is stepping in to pass legislation that's going to erode some of the ability for the PBMs to make margin off of that. So I think CVS making the move to try to rationalize the formula that they use to try to uh, set reimbursement at the pharmacy counter, if that's going to translate into a more predictable experience for the consumer, consumer is going to have more insight into what drugs actually cost. And it's going to also help the pharmacies have more stability in their revenue. That's going to advantage the pharmacies, improve that experience at the expense of probably reducing some of the margin that they were making on the PBMs because it erodes some of the value of the contracting that they were doing there. Right. But that was going to happen anyway. So I think shifting the emphasis to trying to make the pharmacy a better experience was, was probably a smart move on their part. All right. Speaking of moving, uh, you know, drugs into the future, we're getting reports that the free version of ChatGPT gives some inaccurate or incomplete answers to drug-related questions. This was pharmacists at Long Island University. They're warning consumers should take the chatbot's responses to medical questions with a grain of salt, which seems like a fairly obvious conclusion to draw. But then I think about the way that I've been using it myself, and sometimes I do ask <laughs> ask it medical questions, and uh, you know, maybe I'm, maybe it's a slippery slope here. Well, look, I think right now these large language models are better suited for formulating good questions rather than for formulating answers. Mm -hmm. The clinical, the, the training sets that they're trained on aren't regulatory grade, high grade clinical training sets. And so the information that you get out is only as reliable as the information that they're, they're looking at. And in a lot of cases, these, these models, including ChatGPT, are looking at old information, and especially drug information, drug side effect information changes very quickly. It's hard to know exactly where to go for the most updated information. So I think the best way to use these models right now, if you want to use them in a clinical context, is they do help formulate good questions. And so you can get a pretty good differential diagnosis off of them if you put in a constellation of symptoms. Some things that they're going to give you back just make no sense clinically. But sometimes they have insights that you might not have thought of as a consumer or even as a physician. But I wouldn't rely on them for treatment advice. I certainly wouldn't rely on them for advice about drug side effects, drug interactions, things that you really need to be consulting your physician for. Yeah, I like how you ran the experiment. You started to go, OK, well, I'm Dr. Scott Gottlieb. I, I can fact check this. But a lot of us really have no idea. You know, maybe this could be uh, the future for CVS. So if, if someone were literally able to better give it a data repository of up to date sources and things like that, I mean, then it could, you know, chat CVS, for instance, could be a really valuable product if it were uh, trustworthy. Yeah, look, FDA has cleared about 600 artificial intelligence devices, machine learning devices that are all trained on closed data sets, meaning that the data sets, the FDA has been able to verify the accuracy of the data that they're trained on. I think the first person to enter the market with a large language model that's trained on a high caliber clinical data set, and companies are trying to do that right now, that's going to have a lot of good first mover advantage. That's ultimately mm -hmm. going to be the large language model that I think could start interacting with 
patients and potentially um, move the physician out of the loop. Right now, if you're going to use a large language model, the, the doctor still needs to be in the loop. Otherwise, it's a medical device that's regulated by the FDA, and I don't think FDA is in a position right now to clear or approve any of these large language models as a medical device, Pre precisely because the data that they're trained on isn't reliable. Um, you need to get regulatory-grade data sets. That's fascinating that that might be in the works, and at some point uh, we can maybe look forward to that. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, as always, we appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thanks a lot. Coming up, Airbnb is back in growth mode, according to its CEO, and the first order of business is a C-suite shuffle. We'll look at why now and whether their business model is still sustainable in a higher rate environment. And as we head to break, take a look at shares of Charter sinking 8% today after its CFO warned the cable company could post negative internet net additions in Q4. It's taking down some other communication stocks like Comcast and Cable One as well. We're back after this. At the UPS Store, we want to make this summer the summer of shipping, summer shipalooza, so you can start crossing items off your must-ship list, like the vintage film camera your college kid needs for class or the vase you told your mom you would send her ages ago. And with our pack-and-ship guarantee, your items arrive safe or we reimburse you. So stop by your local store today for everything you need to be unstoppable. Visit the upsstore.com slash guarantee for full details. Available at participating locations. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update for this hour. Republican leaders said today that the House will likely vote next week to formalize their impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Next week is the last week the chamber is in session before lawmakers leave for the holidays. At a press conference today, Speaker Mike Johnson called the vote a necessary constitutional step. Results from a global exam show that U.S. Math students' math scores are falling behind their peers in other industrialized countries. Student scores on an international math assessment in 2022 showed a 13-point drop compared to scores in 2018. They were also among the lowest scores ever measured in math for the U.S. I got one idea. The pandemic didn't help. Congressman Patrick McHenry, McHenry announced today that he's not going to run for re-election in 2024. The House Republican gained national attention when he was named Speaker Pro Tem for three weeks in October after Republicans ousted Kevin McCarthy from the role of Speaker. McHenry was first elected back in 2004. Kelly, back to you. That's a big about face. Yes, uh, Tyler, thank you. I'll see you soon. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, Walmart down 9% since its all-time high ahead of its most recent earnings report. And while it suspended advertising on X, it's trying a new route to attract shoppers now. We've got all the details next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Walmart linking two seasonal favorites, holiday movies and online shopping. The retailer calling it a rom-commerce. Walmart's add to heart 
That's the name of it. It's kind of a pun on add to cart. It's a shoppable 23-part commercial series that not only entertains consumers, but allows them to shop what they see in each scene. But with 23 parts, will consumers stick around long enough to peruse all 300 products? For more on this, let's bring in Mark Douglas, the CEO of Mountain, the first agency to bring direct response ads to streaming TV, and retail consultant Jan Niffen. It's great to have you both here. Jan, I'll start with you. I don't know why I get such a kick out of this. It's not like it's, you know, the newest idea ever, but it's pretty explicit, wouldn't you say? Well, yeah, it hasn't been around since like the 1920s when Buster Keaton first did it. But this is really great, I think. I love the idea of a three-minute thing that you can do really quickly and order from it. Because, you know, our attention spans have gone to nothing. And three minutes is about right for a rom-com anyway, in my opinion. And I don't think they have to stay around to look at all 300 items. I think if they spend any time on any of these segments, and might even get attracted to the next segment, this is still going to be a very successful effort because it's novel, it's fast, it's easy, and it's really spinning to a younger audience, which is going to be great for Walmart. And I know you say you think advertisers will love it. The question is, will will people watch? Mark, and, and we just showed some B-roll there. Sorry, people listening can't see it, but it looks like a regular movie to me. I don't understand what's, is it clickable or do I watch it in TikTok or what, what how do I buy stuff? The, um, well, I think they're relying on Roku and other TV manufacturers that you're going to be able to start to interact with the television itself, So, which is new. Normally, you can't interact really with the show. You can't interact with the ads. My opinion on it, though, is that for rom-coms and general content, it's actually not going to do that well. I mean, the first rule of marketing is you need a clear call to action and just hoping people are going to kind of like go, oh, that looks interesting. Maybe I could buy it. <laughs> I'm not so sure that's going to work well. But for sports and selling sports apparel, where, you know, where there's really engagement in the show, I think that it, it, the idea has a lot of merit. So you, in other words, don't think it's um, explicit enough. You know, <laughs> it is called Add exactly. to Heart I mean, for a shopping-oriented se- series. So, but you think, what would that look like to be something even more explicit, like more, more almost like QVC? Yeah, so, I mean, you can have at a sports game, the announcers can literally say, hey, buy your sports apparel right now on your television during this game. Mm-hmm. Or you could have, like, the hex, you know, like, like a celebrity chef on Food Network saying, hey, I'm using this cookware, and if you want to buy this, you know, just click that on your TV. I, I The general thing you see with consumers is they need a little nudging. They don't kind of sit around just kind of, like, you know, kind of, haphazardly stumbling on the buying products. There needs to be someone telling them to buy. A little nudging, Jan. It sounds like Mark's saying you got to just just tell it to them 10,000. Just beat them to death with it until they finally <laughs> give it. That's actually the way I usually respond to advertising. I agree with that. You do have to beat them to death. And if they're not interested in something, then they don't buy it. But on these little rom-com pieces they've got, there's actually a clickable spot on there. And when it shows the shoes, it basically gives you a little ad box. So if you're interested in those shoes, you're suddenly saying, hey, they're they're selling these. So I think this is going to work, and I think it'll just get better. You know how that works. You make the first batch of them. You see how the customer reacts. You decide if you need something different. But I'm really excited about this. I think this can work. And I think that Walmart has got the right idea. Make them very short. Put something in there that's light and airy and show an 
interesting product is, and let you click on it to buy it. Is it too expensive? I mean, why go through the trouble of doing this whole filmed series, Jen, when you could just have TikTok influencers outline these are the 10 cool things I want from Walmart? It might be too expensive. That's what we don't know yet. My guess is if you're Walmart, you can get these made pretty cheaply. And my guess also is that they're going to get an enormous amount of exposure and you don't have the risk that some crazy influencer also does something else stupid in the process while you're relying on them. This is all pre-planned stuff. They won't have mistakes made like you get with influencers. Quick last word, Mark. Um, they call people couch potatoes for a reason. I'm not, I'm not so sure they're ready to become super engaged consumers while they're laying back on the couch. So we'll see how it plays out. All right, gentlemen, thank you both. Mark Douglas, Jan Niffen. By the way, don't miss Walmart CEO Doug McMillan on Squawk on the Street tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. Eastern. Another opportunity to find out more about rom commerce. Could be a whole new category or not. Coming up, the 10-year yield plunging over the past six weeks from 5% to barely above 4 And while that's been a help to tech stocks, many of them are still in efficiency mode, as yesterday's layoffs at Spotify noted. We'll dig into one tech company's C-suite change as its CEO says it's also at an inflection point. That's next. Welcome back. Airbnb shaking up its C-suite as they look to launch a new strategy focused on growth. For today's Tech Check, Deirdre Bosa brings us those details. Shares kind of shrugging it off, Deirdre. Yeah, so Kelly, Airbnb has actually been one of the most disciplined tech companies over the last few years. Really found that discipline in the pandemic. And unlike many other tech companies, it didn't go on this crazy hiring spree over 2021. So now the company has decided that it is time for growth, to reaccelerate, because growth sort of peaked at 70% after the pandemic, and it's sort of stagnated around 18% year over year over the last two quarters. The person they're putting in charge of this is Dave Stevenson. He was the CFO, and he spent about two decades at Amazon. So it's kind of interesting to maybe speculate what he's going to do. Is he going to kind of employ some of the things that Amazon has done with the prime flywheel? Because remember, Airbnb has this ecosystem, this platform that's really self-contained. Many of its users go directly to the Airbnb app or Airbnb.com to book. They don't even go through search engines like Google. And it's interesting timing because as Wall Street looks to looks for the Fed to actually cut rates. There's going to be more emphasis, more value on growth versus profitability. So really, this year of efficiency that we've seen in tech could turn into a year of growth. And Airbnb would be well positioned if it is, in fact, focusing on that. And over the years, it has collected this you know, big cash pile as well as free cash flow, more than $4 billion over the last 12 months. So it could be in a good position. The last thing I'll say, Kelly, which is really interesting, is Airbnb is not the only company to move a CFO to the sort of chief business or chief strategy officer. You're seeing that at Alphabet, where Ruth Porat is moving into this broader president slash chief investment officer role where she's going to look over the moonshots. And about a year ago, you saw Meta transfer its CFO, David Wenner, into a chief strategy officer role. So maybe all of tech is getting ready to reaccelerate growth. Or, or hope to reaccelerate growth. A lot of it does also seem uh, to be co taking a close eye to uh, expenses and thinking efficiently and reorganizing as they face these inflection points. Deirdre, we'll see how it plans out. Yeah. As always, thanks.
our Deirdre Bosa in Tech Check. Still ahead, Toll Brothers has missed on the bottom line just once in the past 20 quarters. Near-term options in box say it could move 8% in either direction on earnings. And Campbell shares are down 28% this year, but is it time to buy the dip? We've got the action, the story, and the trade in earnings exchange next. Welcome back. We're tackling shelter, storage, and soup in today's earnings exchange. We'll bring you the action, the story, and the trade on Toll, Box, and Campbell's. KKM Financial's Jeff Kilberg is our trader today. Kilberg, good to see you again. We appreciate it. Let's kick off with Toll. The shares just hit an all-time high yesterday, and November was its best month since April of 2020. Mortgage rate's still high, though. Street will be watching for pricing changes. Wedbush says their typical buyer is still strong. Would you buy the stock at basically all-time high highs here and up 74% year-to-date? Kelly, there's momentum. So yes, I do want to be a buyer here. And I think it's fascinating to see when you compare it to DR Horton, which is about five times the size of Toll Brothers, it's a different animal. You see Toll Brothers more in the luxury market. They're doing about almost 10,000 units a year, average price about a million dollars. But what we just saw since we saw rates move lower, we have seen a reprieve in the 30-year mortgage rate. So that mortgage rate now is the lowest level since August. So that may rejuvenate some of the buyers who were on pause as they look for that second home or another home to move into. So I think there is momentum. I think I want to see that move continue to move higher. I know we're going to have a sales decline in revenue, but at the end of the day, we're coming off three years of COVID when everyone was moving to the suburbs. Yeah, no, all right. It's Who would have thought that it would be all-time highs, even with uh, some of the weak activity we were seeing broadly in the the market? In the face of the mortgage rates, exactly. It's hard to believe. It's crazy. All right, what about Box? Uh, 13% decline on the year so far. KeyBank is watching cloud AI and their higher-tiered pricing plan that they say could boost profit margins. Uh, You know, this one kind of flies under the radar. Would you do anything here? You know, I want to be a seller here. If you're owning it right here, I think you have a hope and maybe a prayer because it's above its 50-day moving average. But I think with this market cap at $4 billion, it seems almost like a takeover target, Kelly. And at the end of the day, if it has not moved higher, it's dragged and been a laggard all year. If you look at the productivity software segment just back in November, it was up about 15%, where Box was only up about half that, at 7.5%. So it seems cheap on a valuation of forward PE, but there's a reason why it's cheap. So I think it goes lower. So I want to stay away from Box unless the fact we do see someone come in and swipe them and absorb them in a takeover purchase. All right, watching that 50-day line uh, that you see there. Let's move along to Campbell's. Those shares are down 28% this year. Deutsche Bank focused on whether pricing can hold or if the sales mix will skew lower. They're also watching that planned acquisition, as am I, of Sovos Brands, the Rayo sauce maker. It's my favorite. Uh, And it's received some FTC scrutiny. Campbell's, and and by the way, just to throw this at you as well, Jeff, Nancy Lazaro over at Piper Sandler points out soup is one of the few categories where we've seen no disinflation after the 20 plus percent inflation during the pandemic. Yeah, and look, I'm a fan of Campbell's Soup. Uh, They're chunky soups. Surprise, surprise, I like chunky soup. But nonetheless, Kelly, I think this has just been a laggard. If you look at a year to date, one year, three year, five year, this has been a tough stock to own, but I like it as a trade. I want to be a buyer here. I know all the dividend focus. uh, People get excited about the fact that they're going to pop up to 3.6% in a dividend yield. But this has just been a trade that's an oversold. I think you talk about packaged food segment. That was up in the month of November. Everything was up in the month of November, but Campbell's Soup was flat on the month of November. So Mm. I think there is an opportunity for this to move higher. It seems like it just overtook its 50-day moving average. So maybe it goes all the way up to $47 on the 
lack of volume and a lack of interest. So the 200-day moving average has an opportunity to trade, but there has to be a catalyst here, and I'm looking for that maybe just a short covering or maybe just a, a back and fill up on the chart. All right, there we can see the gap you're talking about. It's right around 40 bucks. Uh, just in the couple seconds left, Jeff, uh, 10-year has more than reacted as you expected it would, but at 417, do you think it's below four is the next move? Well, Kelly, I think in the same way we talked just six weeks ago on your program that it was way the yields were too high, over 5%. I think that was an extreme, and now we're seeing the pendulum swing the other way. So I think it settles back in around four and a quarter percent as we go into the end of the year. But mm -hmm. every stock uh, asset class out there is welcome these lower rates. That is for sure. Jeff Kilberg, we appreciate it. We'll let you go from KKM Financial. Before we go, CNBC's Work Summit, The Promise and Peril of AI, will be held tomorrow. You can hear from experts on how it'll transform the future of work. And to register, scan that QR code on your screen or visit cnbcevents.com. That does it for us. Coming up on Power Lunch, is salad the future of fast food? The former Wingstop CEO thinks so. He'll tell us why. Tyler's getting ready. I'll join you on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.